At a time when we're told to bring our whole selves to the office, there's still a lot of stigma attached to mental health. Enter The Anxious Achiever, a show about how anxiety, depression, and other issues affect people at work. It's from Harvard Business Review. Some of the world's most successful people struggle with mental health challenges, and host Maura Ahrens-Mealy is on a mission to tell their stories. I think you'll really appreciate the episode with Gabrielle Union, who speaks candidly about her experiences with toxic Hollywood workplaces and her ongoing struggle with anxiety and PTSD. Check out the new season of The Anxious Achiever. Maura talks to leaders who love their work to find inspiration from their messy, anxious, depressed, and joyous truth. Get The Anxious Achiever wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Rashma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the podcast where we break away from the cult of perfection and live bolder, happier lives. One thing that always astounds me is the bravery of young people, the clarity with which they see the problems in our world. Young people will lead us into the future, and the rest of us, well, we could learn a thing or two from them, because we all need to be building toward that world, right? now. Joining me today to talk about education and the wisdom of young people is the brilliant John King Jr. He previously served as a secretary of the Department of Education under the Obama administration. And today, he's the president and CEO of the Education Trust, a nonprofit seeking to close the opportunity and achievement gaps. John also serves on Harvard's Board of Overseers with me, and working with him it's been a real treat. You've talked before about how students have frequently been at the forefront of civil rights, social justice, and quite frankly, every movement that we've seen in this country over the past few years. So I want to start by asking you, you know, what have you learned from your students over the years? So many things I've learned from my students. I will say one, one thing that I have learned and keep learning again, because I still teach. I, I teach at uh, University of Maryland here uh, where I live. I continually relearn this lesson of impatience. Then there's like a powerful impatience that young people bring to issues of social justice that is so critical. I think sometimes one can get you know, worn down by the reality of some of the institutional obstacles to change. And it's important to have young people's perspective of, no, no, it doesn't have to be this way. It can be different. It needs to be different. I was thinking a lot about this around the death of Congressman Lewis. And, you know, when he was speaking at the March on Washington, either the youngest or one of the youngest speakers of that March on Washington, They actually asked him to tone down his speech because his speech involved conveying incredible impatience and impatience with the pace of change. And he toned it down a little bit. He just chose a little bit different language to make the same point that change needed to be made quickly and that um, racism and segregation were immoral and needed to be dismantled. And he even has had a line, something like, you know, this system has to be burned down nonviolently. 
which is really powerful. That kind of impatience, I feel like whether I was, you know, a middle school principal or when I was teaching high school or now teaching college students, I'm always reminded by my students, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. We, we can make change faster than we think. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, such a great point, right? I mean, I'm, yeah, I find myself getting frustrated and saying, you know what, like it's impossible to change and to say, let's build something else. But I think that their commitment to forcing us to not accept, I think, especially in this moment of disruption, right? In this global health crisis, I always say like we're in this portal, you know, Arundhati Roy wrote this amazing article about that we're moving from one time to the other. And the next kind of phase of society is gonna be one hopefully that's more equitable, but it's gonna be young people who push us there. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that. Um, I read an op-ed that you wrote a few years ago about student activists and how it's so important that we teach them civic responsibility. You know, we're seeing time and time again how young people are standing up for change. Uh, The BLM movement is no better example, right, of seeing young people on the streets every single day. What's happening in Portland right now, what's happening, you know, across the country. You know, what do you wish that today's students knew about civic responsibility? And what do you wish was included in their school curriculum? Well, you know, one of the things that's inspiring is that the Black Lives Matters protesters have educated themselves on some of these issues where we should have done a better job in schools. I would start with, um, we ought to have a curriculum, we were talking about this a little bit before getting on the call, we ought to have a curriculum that helps students understand how systemic racism operates in our society. And we ought to have a more accurate vision of our history to understand that we've always had this tension between messages of freedom and democracy and the reality of slavery, Jim Crow, institutional oppression, anti-immigrant fervor. Those have always been with us, these kind of twin strands. And we often don't talk about the hard part. We also don't do enough to highlight examples of Black excellence, Latino excellence, Asian American excellence, the ways in which communities of color have contributed to the building of the country. So that fundamental understanding of how we got where we are, the reality that the Kerner Commission report in the 1960s pointed out some of the same problems that we have today around policing and police violence and systemic racism in policing and we didn't make the changes we needed to. So there is an accuracy about our history that's a foundational thing that I think we could be doing a better job at in our schools. We also, I think, have to define civic action as more than just voting. Voting is hugely important. It's sort of necessary, but not sufficient. And I think what the young people who are protesting are showing us is that there are lots of ways to have your voice heard. Protesting, Writing to, your, writing to your representatives, showing up at hearings, showing up at a local school board meeting, testifying, uh, building relationships with elected officials, um, boycotting, right? You think about the Montgomery bus boycott in, during the civil rights movement, that was using boycotting as a strategy to put pressure for institutional change. And so I, I think we have to do a better job teaching the kind of the range of tools but again, I'm inspired that young people, they aren't waiting for us to teach it in school. They've gone out and educated themselves. Right. So to that point, I was listening to a podcast. I think it was a daily. And I think there was, you know, one of the things that they were talking about was that so much of like 
the fact that we don't put things into the history books is almost like the shame that we have for our history, right? We're happy to be like, oh, America won that gold medal, medal, right? America did this positive thing. But when it's about slavery or other points of violence against our, our fellow citizens, we don't want to talk about it. Do you think that that has something to do with it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of it is well-intentioned. Some of it is malintentioned. You know, after the Civil War, there was a real concerted campaign to retell the history of the Civil War in a way that glorified the Confederacy that's reflected in the statues that we see and some of the messages in textbooks about the Confederacy and what their goals were, right? Sort of trying to cloud the reality that the Confederacy was a rebellion against the United States to protect the institution of slavery. And so some of that was intentional. I think some of it is unintentional and some of it is just, I think, folks grappling with the shame of their own ancestors' involvement in these institutions. So I recently learned in the last couple of years that the property where my great-grandfather and his family were enslaved, which is about 25 miles from where I live, is still owned by the family that are direct line descendants, the folks who owned my ancestors. And I had the chance to go visit with them the enslaved people's quarters where my great-grandfather lived are still standing on the property. Wow. Uh, the property really looks almost exactly like it did in the uh, 1850s. Still is an operating farm. And spending time with, with the family has been really interesting because I think for them, it's very hard to see their ancestors in the light of the institution of slavery, even though they grew up on this plantation, knowing that the quarters were the enslaved people's quarters, knowing that there was an unmarked uh, burial ground for the enslaved people on the property, which is where my great-grandfather's father is likely buried. They hadn't really grappled with the legacy of slavery that's bound up with their home and their family's history. And that's been hard for them. And I think it points to work we need to do to, to have real reconciliation as a country. We have to have an honest conversation about what slavery looked like, how horrific it was, and how tied today is to that history that's not that long ago in our nation's history. Uh, and every institution we have has some relationship to that period of time. Yeah, Brian Stevenson talks about this, right? It's until you have an honest conversation, you can never heal. You will That's never right. heal as a country. That's right. So you've been really vocal about how our education system should respond to the coronavirus pandemic and about the need to avoid cuts, the need to allocate resources for high need students. This is one of my most important issues that I've been thinking about and talking about and writing about. If you were secretary of education right now, and I wish you were, how would you handle school reopenings to make sure that every single student gets a chance at education? Well, one, I think it's part of the job of the Secretary of Education to speak for the sector, to speak for schools and for the interests of schools. And I wish the current secretary was making the argument that we got to get our act together as a country around COVID if we want schools to be able to do their work, right? That when you look at our international peers, they have 
testing and contact tracing and a strategy to help people quarantine, and they have broad compliance with the advice of public health experts. We don't have any of that. And as a result, we have these very high rates of community spread that are gonna make it impossible to open the school. So the current secretary is spending her time advancing the administration's argument, schools should open no matter the health implications for kids, families, teachers, and staff instead of making the argument that we need to do some things differently as a society to get to a place where schools could open. So that's one. Two, this is really hard, figuring out how, even where community spread is low, figuring out how to open in ways that are safe, where you can maintain physical distancing, where you can improve ventilation, where you can make sure that folks have masks and personal protective equipment. That is all hard, and the department Current federal education departments provided very little guidance to school districts on how to do that. And the CDC has unfortunately provided very confusing and now conflicting guidance to schools. That is a huge problem. Schools need good information on how to proceed if they're going to open. And even if they're going to open for small numbers of students, maybe students with disabilities or students who are, who are in real deep academic need, they still need strategies for how to do that safely and the department ought to be helping them. Department ought to be championing internet access for everyone and device access for everyone. Because we know we're gonna end up with lots of places doing distance, lots of places doing hybrid. And we, you know, I mean, this is something you've worked your whole life on. We have these huge disparities in access. If you don't have the internet today, the schoolhouse door is barred for you. So the department ought to be leading on how do we get Congress, the FCC, states, local governments do everything possible to make sure every kid has internet access and every kid has a device, which means not a device in the house, but actually a device for every child in the home to be able to do their work. Yeah. And they haven't been leading on that. And that's a huge, huge obstacle. It means kids are going to be without learning this fall. And that is immoral. And we knew this. I mean, this has been happening since March where you had kids in Burger King parking lots. You had one device for a family of four and like everybody was sacrificing their education. You know, one of our alumni, Kaya Sue, was telling me she's a major in computer science at George Washington and she's black. And when given the choice to do remote or to go to school till November, she said that her and many of her peers of color decided to do remote because they know that COVID disproportionately affects black communities and they didn't want to get their families sick. I mean, think about that. So you, you saw this as an article out last week that FAFSA numbers are dramatically declined uh, for black and Latina students. Mm-hmm. And we're not having a conversation about the disparity that's about to just, I mean, this, can you also share the stat you just shared with us in terms of black student enrollment and Latino student enrollment in public colleges, how that's decreased. And like, again, like where we're moving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the thing COVID-19 hasn't just created these inequities. These inequities existed before COVID-19 and COVID-19 has exacerbated them and put them into sharper relief. Uh, we just did a paper at a trust called Segregation Forever, where we describe the reality that there's not a single state in this country where the percentage of Black and Latino students in their selective admission public colleges matches the percentage of Black and Latino students in the college age population. Not one. And in fact, 
in a majority of cases, the percentage of black students enrolled today is lower than the percentage of black students who are enrolling 20 years ago. So those are our public institutions now. Those are the institutions, their actual mission is to serve the people of their state and they're not doing it. Black and Latino students are systematically underrepresented. But it's an extension of the way in which, as a country, we systematically deprive students of color and low-income students of access to opportunity. Students of color and low-income students are less likely to have quality pre-K. Their schools get systematically less funding. They're less likely to have the strongest teachers, less likely to have advanced coursework, less likely to have science, social studies, and the arts in their curriculum less likely to have access to school counselors. And so this, these systematic inequities then play out in who gets to go to college, who gets through college, and then who's able to succeed in the workforce. And so again, if people, if people wanna make their statements of solidarity with the protesters and their statements that Black Lives Matter, are, they wanna make them mean something, we have to dismantle all those systemic inequities. Yeah, and I want the students on, who are listening today to think about what the role they're going to play. Because I think what I've learned is that we can't wait for our government officials to fix things for That's us. Right. So you were only our country's second Black Secretary of Education. And you've had so many family members that were trailblazers. I got to read this. Your relatives include New York City's first Black school superintendent, one of the first professional Black basketball players, a member of the Tuskegee Airmen, but it's hard to be the first or the second or even the third. Mm -hmm. And many of the students in our program are the first in their computer science class or the first in their robotics club. What advice do you have to our girls about maintaining the strength and the courage to break barriers like this? Yeah, I think so true that it is, it is hard to be the first or the only. And I think that the challenge is both to find ways to excel in the academic or professional environment and be whole as a person. Mm. And you know, I think we both know people who are able to manage the first, but not the second, that they're excelling, but they're not whole people and they're suffering inside. And so how do you, how do you avoid that? And I think a couple of things, one is to build a community of support. I mean, one of the powerful things about Girls Who Code is that you're creating a community of peers so that, yeah, I may be the only person of color, the only woman, the only LGBTQ person in a meeting, but I also have peers who are also having that experience somewhere else and we can connect and we can share notes and we can support each other. That, that I think is really powerful. And for me has made a huge difference to just have communities of folks of color who I am able to lean on for support as mentors, but also just as a professional community of peers. I think figuring out how to choose environments where you can be yourself. You know, it's fair to say, and I'm sure you would say this about the tech sector, there are companies that treat people better or worse. And to have the self-care to choose the environment that is better for you and to know what your personal non-negotiables are. And you know that you're not gonna allow yourself to be undervalued or taken advantage of or mistreated and that you're gonna find environments that work for you. Now that's not always possible, but I don't, I don't think that anyone 
needs to go into the workforce thinking that they are going to subject themselves to mistreatment as a matter of principle. You may have to endure that, but then you ought to be asking, well, how do I get to a place where I'm going to have an environment of support? And we all have to be allies for each other, for other people of color, for other folks who may be oppressed in different ways, whether it's folks with disabilities or LGBTQ folks. We have to speak up for each other and demand that workplaces change their culture and practices to value everyone's humanity. You know, as you were talking, and I always think about this question, I, I just keep thinking about First Lady Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. And when she talks about how when that last day when they walked on Air Force One and she shut the door and she just started crying, she said, that was so hard, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but they did it mm-hmm. and they changed history and they then broke the doors down for other people. But mm-hmm. you're right. At the same time, they maintained, I assume, right, a community of people that that held them, right, and that lifted them up and but acknowledging, yeah, it's tough, you know. So I have a question from Natalie in New York City and a similar question from Aya in Chicago. What is your advice for questioning and reflecting on what our teachers and curriculum are telling us? How can we teach history in a proper and sensitive manner? Well, I hope, you know, I hope some of the young people who are on this call and are part of the Girls Who Code community will organize within their schools to demand something different. So for example, the New York Times did this series, the 1619 Project, where they looked at the centrality of the institution of slavery to America's evolution and the central role of Black people in the evolution of our country. And you know, the city of Chicago has said they're going to use the 1619 Project in all of their high schools. So how do we organize to say to the school board or New York City DOE or even our own principal to say, we've got to look at our history curriculum? There was an interesting study done on English language arts, and they were looking at reading curricula. And they found that there are some elementary school reading curricula where there are more characters who are animals than there are characters who are people of color, right? And so that renders you invisible. Well, that's something that schools can change by saying, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna read Toni Morrison here. We're gonna read Zora Neale Hurston here. We're gonna read James Baldwin here. But it's also something every individual teacher can do. Every elementary school teacher can go in their classroom library and count their books and see, oh, well, how many books do I have that have Black, Latino, Asian American characters? How many books do I have that are by Black, Latino, Asian American authors? That could be quite powerful. That's one teacher by teacher, but but there's also then organizing at the school or district or state level. There are some states that haven't changed their social studies standards in decades. They ought to change those and revisit those. And again, to me, it's this question of like, how real is your commitment? You know, I see someone asking about Virginia who's from Virginia, asking this question. You know, Virginia has gone through this process where they're taking down Confederate statues. That's good, but it's just such a small start. Like we have to demand so much more. I was at an event, I followed uh, Reverend Barber uh, from the Poor People's Campaign. And Reverend Barber said, we need to change not just statues, but statutes. Right, we have to change the law, not just the statues. Yeah, so you saw in the chat, Julie from Virginia, what would you change in the curriculum in the typical American school? I mean, a lot of things. It was up to me, but uh, 
certainly this question of diverse representation, I, I, I think about it as windows and mirrors that all kids need to have opportunities to see themselves reflected and they need opportunities to see experiences beyond their own. And that matters not only for students of color, that matters for white students. I think one of the ways we dismantle systemic racism is we ensure that white students have a deeper appreciation for how systemic racism operates and for the role that people of color have played in building this country. Yeah, one of the things I would change is I do a lot more science and social studies and arts, a much more well-rounded experience, which unfortunately affluent students tend to get and low-income students get English and math often and not much beyond that, unfortunately. You know, the role of technology, I'd start a lot earlier with computer science, but I also would ensure that teachers are figuring out how to leverage technology for all of their classes, right? Like if you're studying the ocean, technology makes it possible for you to go down to the deepest levels of the ocean and explore, right, through technology. If you are studying the Egyptian pyramids, you don't have to just read about them, you can go to them through technology, but we don't often leverage technology in that way. And just as computer science, I would start earlier, I'd start other languages earlier. You think about our international peers, I mean, you know this, right? You go to a European country and people speak three, four languages as kind of a matter of course. We often don't start a second language until you're in middle school. We should be starting from the youngest ages, helping young people become multilingual. And we should see kids who come to school speaking a language other than English at home as bringing an asset to school. But instead we often treat that like a deficit. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, mean, I think we got to do this at Girls Who Code with this virtual program is because we had to pivot to being virtual. We got to reimagine what we had been doing for the past eight years. And teachers, I know it's a lot to ask, a lot burden on them, but for the next year, the textbook's in the garbage. Like they can actually reinvent and reteach and shift and change. And so I hope that there's a moment for some innovation and reflection and equity in telling these stories, this opportunity here. Uh, question from Neha. Did you have role models growing up? And if so, who were they? Yeah, well, certainly my, you know, my parents were both teachers. That had a huge influence on me. But I would say probably the most impactful was my teacher in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, Mr. Osterweil. My mom passed in October of my fourth grade year. And that's when I started in Mr. Osterweil's classroom. And then I lived with my dad. My dad had uh, undiagnosed Alzheimer's. So over the course of fourth, fifth, sixth grade, my father got less and less well, and home was often uh, unstable and scary and lonely. It was just the two of us. No one else knew what was going on in our house. And before he passed, when I was 12, um, you know, I basically was just keeping our household going, figuring out how to pay bills, figuring out how to get food in our house, figuring out how to keep things going. So Home was really hard, but the thing that saved me was school because Mr. Osterwell was this amazing teacher who created a classroom space that was safe, engaging, nurturing. I remember the stuff we did in that class, like it was yesterday, we were in the New York Times every day, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. We did productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream and Alice in Wonderland. I was the rose in Alice in Wonderland in the garden scene with big red felt petals sticking out of my head, right? Like I remember those things because 
his classroom was a place where I could be a kid. And it really saved my life. I'm still in touch with him. Just a wonderful person. And I'm quite sure if I had not had him during the, that period of my life, I know if I'd be alive today, maybe I'd be in prison, but my, my life would have gone just in such a different direction. And so when I became a teacher or principal, I was always thinking about that. Like, how do I create for other kids what Mr. Osterweil created for me? And ultimately, that's why I do the policy work that I do. That's such a, that, thank you for sharing that. And I think so many of us have that person in our lives, that teacher in our lives that literally saved us. Mm-hmm. It's almost that, that telling you that you are somebody, that you can be somebody mm-hmm. means everything when you're at that age. Next question is really important. A question from Kaylee from New York City. What are ways that teens can address the inequalities and make change to help other teens who are disproportionately affected? Well, if you're 18, vote. But even before you're 18, your ability to organize politically, right, to whether it's participating in the protests or making sure that folks complete the census, which is so critical, or making sure that folks who can vote do, or making sure that people organize to make their voices heard by public officials, like young people can be involved in all of that, even before they can vote themselves. There's lots that's happening in New York City around school segregation, but young people can organize to say, we ought to change the attendance zones for elementary schools in this district. We ought to change our admissions policies for our middle schools and high schools so that our schools are racially diverse, so that all kids have access to the kinds of opportunities that are available. And there's a lot of young people can do to make their voices heard. Yeah. It's so, I mean, if you think about every major movement that's happened over the past two years, you know, BLM, climate change, right? It's all been led by young people mm-hmm. in areas where we said, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't, can we do anything? Like, I don't know what to do. We, the adults gave up. Yeah. But the young people said, oh, no. That's right. That's exactly right. Question from Molly. Given the uncertainty of the world today, what is the one piece of advice you would give us? To be persistent. You think about the challenges we face, they're not easy to solve. So one of the worries I have is that, especially in our media-driven culture, like we pay a lot of attention to something and then it sort of fades from our view and we move on to the next thing. And so the thing I would hope for young people who are trying to make real social change is that they will stay at it and there may be defeats and you gotta stay persistent. You made the point about Mrs. Obama and President Obama and their, their transformative impact. But even when you and I were kids, the idea of a Black president was like something that might be in a movie as some fantastical occurrence. It didn't seem like a real possibility. But for President Obama to stand with John Lewis And so be able to say to John Lewis, when you marched across that Edmund Pettus Bridge, when you were beaten marching across that bridge for voting rights, that was part of a process that got us to the day of President Obama being sworn in. For President Obama to be able to stand and say that to John Lewis, for John Lewis to get to see that, what a tremendous kind of signal about what is possible through social change and through nonviolent civil rights activism. And so we have to take that long view and ask, you know, what what would we want 
what do we want 50 years from now to look like? And then how do we work systematically over the next 50 years to get to that reality? Yeah, and I think in John Lewis's legacy, he really believed that fundamentally humans are good. Mm -hmm. And that part of having these hard conversations is about a reckoning and the nation is divided more divided than it's ever been. And I think it, the goal of young people is to heal us, to save us, quite frankly. Yes, yes, have to. They have to. Yeah. Uh, last question, we always love to ask this question. So all of our students right now in the middle of summer immersion program are building something for a problem that they face or the community is facing that they wanna use technology to solve. If you could build one thing, one tool, one app, what would it be and what would you name it? I guess, so, and maybe this exists and I don't know it, but one thing that I would love is for there to be a tool where people could go to learn lessons from social change movements, social justice movements of the past, and also get access to the tools to build on that legacy so that you might, you know, if you knew the thing you wanted to change, that you'd be able to both go find a source of inspiration in some social action, social movement of the past, and then get linked to tools to file a lawsuit, get a bill passed in, in Congress or a state legislature. So organizing for justice app, but sort of how do you, how do you translate wanting something to change into concrete action steps? I call it persistence because that's what you're saying, right? Like somebody yeah, yeah. up where somebody left that's off. Right. That's right. I love it. Well, thank you so much, John. This is a wonderful conversation. I must admit I got emotional a couple of times. So thank you for inspiring every single one of us. And uh, we will not let you down in the work that you've done for our country uh, in terms of education. I think we have a big, a big challenge, a big fight, a big opportunity in front of us to make education available to every single one of our children. So thank you. Thanks for the opportunity and thanks for all that the Girls Who Code community does. That was John King Jr., former Education Secretary and CEO of the Education Trust. The conversation you just heard was recorded as part of the Girls Who Code Summer Speaker Series. Thank you to all the students who submitted such wonderful questions. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. Brave Not Perfect comes out every other Tuesday. See you then. Hi, I'm your executive producer, Oliver Ash Klein. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Today's episode was also made possible by my co-producers, Tanya Zaparonic and Charlotte Stone. And of course, our fearless team leader, Deborah Singer. Andrea Jordan, Rashma Sajani, Ashley Gramby, Gloria Noel, Aaron Page, Zenzele Skylark, Elisa Dwyer, and Raven Abreu also contributed to the making of this episode. See you in two weeks.